faith, worship, obedience, favor, grace, provision, pride, stubbornness, judgment. From faithfulness to infidelity. From blessings to justice. Rudderless man falling and failing. Timeless God correcting and redeeming. An aimless generation repeating a cycle of rebellion and repentance. An unchanging God always giving his best, providing restoration. Judges and kings. have heard of Golda Meir. How many are familiar with that name? The, the over 45 crowd and the history buffs, okay? So Golda Meir, an impressive story. Uh, she was known as the mother of Israel. Today we're looking at Deborah. Deborah is called, first called, the mother of Israel. Golda Meir was born in the Ukraine, a Russian Jew, uh, but then migrated when she was eight years old to the United States, grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When she finished elementary school, her father said, you don't need any more school. You need to prepare to be a wife and a mother. Education will not be necessary. <clears throat> but she fought and she, they, they tussled, tassled a little bit, so she did a little more school. And then finally she moved in with her sister uh, out of the, well, in the next state and went to high school there. And then she came back and she attended college then was married, and they decided to move to Palestine because of their strong Jewish ties, which was not Israel at this point. And they lived uh, basically in a volunteer work camp. They worked hard. Uh, they grew their own food, and uh, Golda began to take uh, leadership positions there uh, in the greater, matter of fact, it was outside of Jerusalem, the greater Israel, Jerusalem area, <clears throat> and it's not yet a nation. Uh, but she began to take on responsibilities. She began to lead groups. And eventually in 1948, when Israel was established as a nation, which, by the way, uh, boys and girls, it was a dead language. In other words, uh, there, was any, there was any country that spoke Hebrew at that time. And uh, they have not been a group. They have not been a country uh, for over 2,000 years at this point, okay? They had been under the domination of the Roman Empire, and then, we, of course, we know what happened in 70 AD when Titus came in, destroyed the city, took over. And so <clears throat> it's, we really haven't had a nation of Israel, so it's really remarkable you see how God's sovereign prophecy, prophecy comes into a play here. Now in 1948, uh, and by the way, one of the reasons that it's become a nation is because of the Holocaust and the atrocities that happened there. The sympathies for the Jews were so high they decided to give them their own land. And so this nation is put back together through the providence of God. And Golda Meir is one of the 24 people who sign what we would call the Declaration of Independence for Israel. She's one of just 24 people that signed this. So Golda Meir uh, continues to serve. And matter of fact, under the first prime minister, uh, Ben Van Gerion, she, he makes her eventually the foreign minister, which is the number two person in Israel. There was no other woman at that day and that time 
<clears throat> in any of the industrialized countries in the world where a woman served that high position. And uh, there was a lot of racket going on then. Many of the Jews and were saying, how can a woman serve? Women are not supposed to serve. Women are not supposed to lead. And you know what they said? You know what David Van Garen and some of the others, they said, what about Deborah? What about Deborah in the Old Testament, the mother of Israel? And matter of fact, that became her moniker. Uh, Golda Meir became the mother of Israel along with Iron Lady, just like Margaret Thatcher. Those were, those were her titles. That's how she was known. Uh, she, matter of fact, David Van Garen, the first prime minister, said, had it not been for Golda Meir, our nation never would have made it uh, because we had, we had troops and we were starting to gather uh, we, our military arsenal, but we just didn't have enough. So he asked her to go to the United States and raise $25 million uh, that they could use for defense purposes. Uh, many of those in the media that day said, that'll never happen. Five, six, seven, eight million dollars tops all she'll raise. But she raised over $55 million, came back, and uh, they were able to begin to build an arsenal. And she, she kept up great relations with the United States and other uh, first world countries. Uh, she tried to uh, work with even the countries around her. But eventually the six-day war came, and the prime minister said, had it not been for the resources Golden Mirror uh, raised, we would have never been able to defend ourselves. Our nation would have collapsed. Uh, but that war only lasted six days, and that's when Egypt and Syria and Jordan, they all came against Israel at one time. They were able to defend themselves, kick them out of areas. It was, it's a pretty remarkable story. Uh, but who's in the background? Well, then, uh, not long after she's foreign minister and she steps down to retire, the prime minister dies. They ask her to come back and be the prime minister. So she becomes the fourth prime minister of Israel. And according to some, uh, they owe their statehood largely to many, but certainly Golden Meir being one of the chief proponents. Now, with that said, uh, we are going to look at Deborah. So, Really, Golda Meir is some form. Now, she wasn't a prophetess, and I promise you she wasn't nearly as godly as Deborah. Uh, but she was a judge. She was the leader uh, of that country at this point. And we're going to come back. Remember I told you before how the Israelites had made a covenant with God, but they began to break that covenant. And if there was one word I would use to describe the book of Judges, it would be this. It would be cycles. That's what scholars would say. There's one word that would identify What's going on in the book of Judges? It's cycles. So what are those cycles? What is that specific cycle that we're going to see here? And you'll see it over and over and over again. This is what happens. So the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 1, they make a commitment to covenant with God, for God to be their God. Caleb says, and excuse me, Joshua said, I choose for you this day who will you serve. But as for me and my house, my Lord will serve Yahweh God. We are committing to his covenant to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and we will, he will be our God, and he will be his, we will be his people. We'll be faithful. We will not worship other gods. We will not chase after other religions. We will be faithful to him and him alone. But now they're breaking the covenant. And so as they do that, uh, you see God letting them go their way, and they're falling into slavery. They're falling into the traps of sin. And they begin to feel the retribution because the favor in the hand of God is away from them. 
and then they cry out. They, in supplication, they cry out in repentance. Oh, God, save us. And that's exactly what's happening in chapter 4. They're crying out to Deborah, and they're crying out to God. And then God sends a deliverer in the form of a judge. Now, Deborah is a judge, apparently, of Ephraim. It's one of the smaller tribes there. There, there are 11 other tribes, so she's just in Ephraim, but she is giving judgments. And when you see these judges, it's interesting how God uses them. You see the Holy Spirit come upon them and endow them with supernatural either strength, as in Samson's case, or with knowledge and wisdom and discernment in Deborah's case. And so that's where we're going to pick up Deborah. She's not only just the judge and the leader, she's also a prophet. And this isn't a time of a theocracy, by the way. Remember, Israel doesn't have a king. Joshua's left, and now there are, there are people who are leading each tribe. But when the, they come under oppression, God will raise up a judge. And Deborah is probably one of the most well-spoken of, of not, or not, if not the most well-spoken of judges of the twelve that Israel experienced. With that said, let's go ahead and let's look at our text and let's just kind of walk through it together as we look at the great leadership principles of Deborah. Not because she's a woman, but because she's a leader. Uh, by the way, I have to say this, just because I need to get it out of my system. Um, uh, you know, just like a lot of people were opposed to, to um, Golda Meir serving in leadership positions, I know sometimes today people still feel that way, feel like women shouldn't speak at church. We let people speak in our women speak in our church. Uh, I've, uh, I was with a guy the other day, not with him, but I would listen to him uh, a few weeks ago. He didn't let let women pray in church, give testimony in church, really anything in church. And um, I, I don't see that in Scripture. I, I really don't. I know there's some passages that Paul talks about the order, uh, but as far as women speaking and as far as women giving testimony and women praying. We see that in Bible. By the way, she's not the only prophetess. There are four others listed in Scripture. Uh, there's Miriam, there's Huldah, there's Anna who was there to greet when Mary and Joseph when Jesus came to the temple. So we see them serving. We see them in leadership positions where they're advising, where they're speaking. So just want to throw that out there and, and tell you that sometimes if we're not careful, we can read our own religious interpretations and we try to make this text say what we want to say. So, for example, sometimes people will say, well, the only reason Deborah was there because there were no other men that would do it. Nobody else would step up. There wasn't another man that would lead. Really? You believe that? There's not another egotistical man out of, 12, out of millions of people who wouldn't say, hey, I'll be the leader. I've been saying they'd be a good one. They'd probably be, they'd stink. Uh, if you want to make the argument that she was the best leader and the most qualified, absolutely, you can probably make that argument, but you can't just say, because nobody else would do it. You're reading your context into Scripture that it doesn't, it doesn't allow for that. You can do it, but that's wrong. That's called bad hermeneutics, okay? Now, now for all of those who are offended, go ahead and write me, and we'll correspond this week about it. All right. With that said, let's move forward. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, you see this theme. Remember, we're talking about the cycle. What's the cycle? The cycle is Israel is disobedient. They did evil, which literally means the opposite of God's intended will, in the sight of the Lord, and Ehud died. Ehud, you, you can go back in chapter 3. He was a judge before, um, before uh, Deborah. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Okay, 
Again, we're using uh, metaphorical language here. God didn't actually get money when he sold them. Uh, what the picture is here, and some translations will say um, that he removed them or he released them. Okay. In other words, his hedge of protection, uh, his empowerment is now removed. Now you're on your own to do it as you see fit. And that's, that's what happens. And there's a guy named Jabin, who's the king of Canaan. And Canaan, remember we talked about? We talked about the, uh, the, just the, the horror of the sin that was being experienced in Canaan. And this is the guy who's in charge. And he has a commander of his army named Sisera. And Sisera has 900 chariots. Now, why is that significant? There are 900 iron chariots. This was the tank of the day, okay? This was the most... Uh, this by far was the most dangerous weapon an army could have. They're in an iron chariot. They have a horse. They're going fast. Uh, they're protected. Uh, they can run over people. They can throw spears. They have the momentum. It was a just. It was an unbelievable uh, asset to have. Israel has none. They have 900, and we know from chapter 5 that they're patrolling the roads. They're going up and down the roads, and uh, people are afraid to come out. They're being taken advantage of. They're being stolen from. Uh, some were probably even being take, uh, taken as slaves and servants. So this is a bad time, and these guys are only profiting for themselves, and they are horrific. And the Bible says they are in charge, and they have 900 chariots of iron, and they're oppressing the people of Israel cruelly. And we know from chapter 5 that the people are crying out to Deborah. They're crying out to the leaders. They're crying out to God about the oppression that they're experiencing. Now, Deborah was a prophetess. We talked about that a while ago. So that means not only is she the judge, but she also is divinely inspired by God to speak to the people and to give direction and to give instruction. So she's the leader on two accounts, the wife of Laphedah was judging Israel at that time. She used, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. Uh, it, it's interesting, the palm is the national symbol for Israel. If you remember when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, what were the people doing? They were waving palms, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. So it's kind of like their flag, kind of like their American flag that they're raising, the palm. And so this probably is more symbolic language, used to center under the palm uh, of, of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. Uh, what does the word Beth mean? We've talked about this before. word Beth means house. What's El mean? God. Anytime you see El, it's talking about God. Bethlehem, house of bread. Okay, El Shaddai, God Almighty. So anytime you see that El there... In the hill country of Ephraim, this is where she is serving. She's serving in one small region of Israel at this point. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So men, women, people are coming to her for judgment. We continue. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, from Kadesh of Naphtali and said to him. And Barak, by the way, is the commander. He's the commander of the militia, so to speak. There's not a literal army at this time, uh, but there's a militia. Each tribe uh, can send men, uh, so to speak, out if there's a need to do battle. And she says, hasn't the Lord already told us to go gather the men at Tabor and take 10,000 people from Naphtali and Zebulon, and I will draw out Sesra, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak has heard the people say this, and now he's heard Deborah say this. He's heard it a lot. 
It's like something, it's, it, it's just a terrible action that's occurring in your country, and you know something needs to be done, but he's not done anything, and he's the commander. And what does Deborah do? She says, hey, the people are crying out, and God has given us a word. You need to go and fight this battle. As a matter of fact, God has revealed where it should be. Go to Mount Tabar and go into the valley there. And Barak says this. He said, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you'll not go with me, I'm not going. Listen, honey, the odds are not in our favor. We have no tanks, no horses. We've got a militia, and I don't know if they'll all go with me. And we know that four of the tribes didn't send anybody, Reuben and uh, Asher and uh, a couple others. They didn't send anybody. But these are the main two tribes, and it looks like these are overwhelming odds. We're going to get beaten. He goes, I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going unless you go. Let me give you an illustration. Last night, um, I was up here studying, and whatever it is, 9.30, my wife calls. She goes, um, can you come home? Um, we started to walk into the house, and a snake, she goes, the bad kind, which you meant copperhead, the bad kind, it just went right into the bushes right next to our door, and we're in the car, and um, <laughs> can, you, can you come home and do something about all this? And I thought, you know, my first thought was, and I grew up in Louisiana like on a snake farm practically. That's just what we had. I said, um, I thought, you know, just throw a rock in there and go on in. It's not going to folly in the house. I mean, that's the one thing. I don't say this because I've learned it only takes me about 20 years of marriage not to say everything I'm thinking. <laughs> and even then, I'm still not really good at it. But anyway, I, for this time, I decided to use some common sense. And I said, well, what would you like me to do? She goes, I don't know. Can you come do something about this? And I said, yes, ma'am. I'm on my way. I'll come over there, and I'll deal with the bad snake. And so I, I get there, and they tell me where it is. They said, don't you want to get a weapon or something? I said, I don't know that we have, really have a good snake weapon. I said, I'll, so I just go get a, I get a long pole, and I go out to where the snake is, and I beat around and get out there and knock around. I knew he was probably gone, so I beat around, and, you know, I said, all right, it's clear. He's gone. He's gone to the neighbors. Come on. Hi. And he's just, just come on in. See, I, I had two choices at that point. But what would you have thought if I'd done this? Um, honey, I'm coming, but you're going out there with me. And we hold hands going to the snake. <laughs> That's kind of what Barrack's doing here. You know what I mean? Um, come on, go with me. <laughs> That's, snake. Those things are poisonous and they kill you. That's kind of the picture of what's going on here. So Barrack said, I'm not going unless you're going. And he said, I, she said, what does she say? She submits. She humbly says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road which you're going on will not lead to your glory, to your honor. You're not going to get the whole glory. Everybody's going to know you had to have me, you had to have a woman come out in front and lead with you. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That's prophetic because we'll see how that turns out in just a moment. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up on their heels. And Deborah went with him. Now Heber of the Kenites separated from the Kenites, uh, the Kenites, uh, the descendants of Hoab, the father-in-law of Moses. In other words, they are uh, direct descendants of Moses' family. Had pitched his tent as far away of the oak as Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sesera was told that Barak and the son of Abinam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sesera called out all his chariots, all 900 of them, and all the men who were with him, uh, from Harasheth Hegeum to the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, 
up. It's time to go. Deborah's still having to help him a little bit. Let's get up. Let's go. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into you. Notice what she says. The Lord is going to give Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? She makes it very clear. This is how we're going to the battle, because we're being led into it, because he's given us the vision, and because he's going to fight our battle through us on our behalf. So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Now, if we go on and we read in chapter 5, Deborah writes a poem, and she gives us the insight of what happened. What happens, they've gone up to this mountain, and they're in the valley area, and which is really, from a strategical standpoint, you wouldn't have done this, but they go and they do it because this is what God has revealed to Deborah, and Deborah tells them. And so they get there, they get ready, and there's here are these 900 chariots. Here are all these men. Their army is far larger and superior. Well, what happens? Well, they start the battle, and a thunderstorm comes in. And that river they were by, it starts to flood over. And guess what happens to the chariots? They get stuck. So they're stuck in this, this rain and in this flood, and their chariots won't move. And so they're literally stuck. They can't go anywhere. They're stuck in the mud. And so what do the Israelites do? They come up, and they pick them off one by one. And so God surely has fought this battle for them. And it must, it's so bad that the general, he can't ride anymore. He doesn't even try. He jumps out so that he can run because obviously his chariot is stuck. And the Bible says that they pursued the chariots as far as they could, all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. But Sisera, who had run away when he recognized what was happening on foot, went to the tent of Jael and the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So what does that mean? Well, it means that he was probably paying them tribute. He's been paying the king. He's probably very wealthy. They probably have a large estate. They're out there on their own, and he pays tribute, and so he keeps peace with Hazar. So um, at this point, uh, Sisera recognizes, hey, this is someone who's been paying tribute, uh, who we're at peace with, and the Bible says, and Jael came to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn to me, and do not be afraid. And that's Jael, his wife, Heber's wife. So he turned to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water, for I'm thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. And, she, and he said to her, and notice how he's giving her instructions. Okay, you're at peace, but remember you're under my authority. He tells her this. He goes, here's what you have to do. Stand at the opening of the tent, and if a man comes and asks you where, if anyone's here, tell him no. So I want you to protect me. And I want you to stand up for me, and I want you to tell them I'm not here. So he's, and again, he's been an oppressor. They've been okay because they've probably been paying tribute, and he thinks he's safe. But the Bible says at this point, he falls asleep because he is so tired. And at that point, Jael, the wife of Heber, takes a tent peg, and she takes a hammer in her hand, and she goes to him softly and drives the peg through his temple as it went into the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come on in, and I'll show you where the man whom you're seeking. So he went to the tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his head. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed the Jabin, 
the king of Canaan. Then Deborah sang a song of thanksgiving, of victory. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinam. That day, the leaders took the lead in Israel. That's pretty gracious of her. She's sharing this with Barak. She could have been saying, I did, but she, she said the leaders, she being a leader, and she becomes the leader of Israel through this process. Uh, and she probably did that to a great extent already, but certainly after this. And the leaders lead, and the people offer themselves willingly. Oh, hear, O king, give ear, O princes, to the Lord will sing. I will make a melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Israel. In other words, she worships, she gives thanks, she shares credit, she shares the glory, she recognizes God has done this for her. I see at least 10 leadership characteristics in Deborah, 10 lessons, 10 characteristics that we can use, whether we're men, women, or children. Here are 10 things that I believe Deborah teaches us in this story. Number one uh, that we'll see is submiss- submissive. She's a leader. But she's okay submitting to Barak. He goes, come go with me, all right? I'll come go with you. She could have said, hey, I'm the judge. I told you to go. I'm not going anywhere. He's already said, I'm not going to go without you. She could have made a big deal of this, but she is submissive. And by the way, uh, you know how you can be a good husband or a good wife is submit to each other? That's really what Ephesians 5 talks about is doing mutual submission in other words, recognizing the value doesn't mean we don't have different roles, but we're showing honor, we're showing respect to one another. And we see that characteristic in Deborah. She's servant-minded. She didn't have, have a problem going and serving. She doesn't have a problem with letting Breck have some of the attention, some of the glory. She's got a servant-minded heart. You know, sometimes I'll hear this from a woman. She goes, I just want my husband to be a spiritual leader. He doesn't spiritually lead at all. And let's talk about this. By the way, if your husband leads a devotional every night, that is terrific. That's like gold, and that is so awesome if that's happening. But can I tell you this? It doesn't mean that your husband is not a leader if he doesn't lead the devotional every night, okay? Um, It doesn't mean he's not a leader if he doesn't do the prayer at every meal. Hopefully, your kids pray, you pray, all of you pray, okay? So a leader is tasked with this commission, making sure things get done. Matter of fact, a man is commanded to manage his house and manage his children okay that's the first sign of spiritual leadership that you're managing your house you're taking care does that mean you do everything no guess what sometimes the wife ought to handle the money because she's better at it than you and she's accountant doesn't mean you're the spirit i'm in charge no that's not was it I'm, I'm glad god didn't do that way in 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 his economy we see examples where god uses those who are gifted and strengthened and those whom he chooses to bless for different Take. So mutual submission. That's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. Servant-minded, faithful. She was faithful with the task that she was given, faithful with the instruction she was given. A leader is always faithful. A Christian leader, a godly leader is faithful. A godly leader leads where he or she is. I think this is a big point right here. What do we mean by that? Well, we see Deborah. She's in a small tribe, and she's exercising judgment. She probably knows that it, all the other guys are pretty much losers, and they're, they're judges. They're, they're high priests. There are other people, but people are coming to Deborah, and here's what we see. She is faithful in her area. She probably could have thought, man, I could be over this whole country. I don't know if she ever thought that or not. All she, we don't see her campaigning for it. We don't see her asking for it. She's just faithful to lead where she is. Sometimes, guys, the most the greatest leadership gift that we can give is just to lead where we are, to lead our family to 
go to church, to encourage our family to pray, to encourage. Sometimes when we serve, as our children see us serving, as our spouse sees us serving, when we give, that, those are all opportunities to lead. To, when we build relationships with our neighbors, when we share the gospel, those are all great opportunities to lead right where you are. So many times we're praying, God, give me that next big thing. God, I, w- I want to do whatever. I want to be in the ministry. I want to do this. I want to start this. I want to get this. And those are all great, but God's saying, lead right where you are right now. Lead in the small things. And we see that spirit in Deborah. We also notice that she embraces pain. What do I mean by that? This is really, really hard, and this might not go well. As a matter of fact, this turkey is making me go out there with him. She goes, all right, God's called me. I've been put in this position, and I, I'll be the first one to take the pain. That's a leader, whether it's in, a, in the house or whether it's in church or whether it's work. The leader is willing to embrace the pain for the sake of others and for the sake of the call. A leader is always learning, is always being willing to be mentored, being willing uh, to read and to study. Deborah obviously has studied much because of the discernment and the knowledge and the wisdom she had. Conviction. She had a conviction that when God spoke and when her people were being oppressed, that she was going to, she was going to follow through with the conviction that she had. She was self-controlled. She could have really chastised all the people, she could have chastised Barak in a significant way, but she simply tells him, you know what, you're not going to get the honor, but I'll go with you. She was self-controlled. She blessed generously. At the end of that time, what does she do? She shares the credit with Barak. She talks about God's goodness. She blesses the people of Israel. Uh, this is not, matter of fact, we see songs happening throughout Scripture through different victories. We saw that with Miriam after the Red Sea. And it's a song that's still very important to the Jewish faith. And then lastly, seek first the kingdom. You know, uh, Matthew 6.33 hadn't been written at that point, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then these things shall be added unto you. What do we see here? We see her first seeking the kingdom. What is best for the kingdom? What is best for God Almighty? What is he calling us to do? What about his honor? What about his name? What about the covenant that we made to be his people and to be faithful as a nation? And she's seeking the kingdom. It goes like this. It's, I saw this on a shirt one time. It's he, we, me. He, what about God's glory? I'm convicted to follow him, to trust him no matter what he calls. Number two, I am going to be responsible for his church, for his, my, my family, those God has put in my life. And then thirdly, I'll worry about me. That's not a popular message today, but that's what seeking the kingdom looks like, and that's what leadership looks like. God, I'm going to follow you despite the opposition, despite the pain, despite the suffering, despite the criticism, despite my lack of of power, despite all that I wish that I had and all I wish to be, I am going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. And secondly, God, I will do whatever it takes to keep the covenant. I will help our people. I will judge on behalf of people. I will lead right where I am. That's a beautiful picture of what Deborah did, and that's a beautiful picture of what real godly leadership looks like. It's not just praying at meals. That's great if you pray for your meal, the husband, but it's great if your kids pray. It's great that you've taught them. Um, It's not just leading Bible studies. 
It is God, a man who's after God's heart, a woman who's after God's heart, and is willing to make the hard calls under the honor and the glory of God. <clears throat> you know, when my wife called me, it was such a, an ironic thing last night when she called me. I was studying, and I was trying to come up with an illustration. I was thinking, I, almost, I, I, I don't have time right now. I'm doing something important, you know, just drive around the block a few times and it'll be fine. You know, that, that's what I wanted to say. I really did. Um, you know, you're probably not impressed with that. Um, but th that's what I really want to do because I'm, I'm, I'm studying. I got to preach. This is important. And it's almost like God said, you know what? You need to lead right where you are. So get your big butt up and get in a car, drive over there, and drive out the snakes. <laughs> All right? Quit, wait, quit waiting for a woman to do it who already told you she doesn't want to do it, all right? <laughs> Let me ask you this. How are you leading in the sphere of influence that God has given you? God gives us a beautiful example through Deborah, how it changed the course for the nation and how after that they had 40 years of peace because of her rule, because of her leadership, because of her investment in the people. You know, when we get before God one day, it's not going to be about how much we have or how much we've done. But it's going to be more about how faithful we've been with the sphere of influence God has surrounded us with, with the opportunity that God has given that's right next to us, that's in our house, that's next door, and at work. How are you leading today? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this great story of Deborah, this heroine of the faith. Lord, I love how you take people and use them in spite of what our culture or what our biases and what our prejudices would allow for. Thank you, Lord. In spite of us, you still work. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And if there's one that doesn't know you here today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen.